Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I am Kave. Lizzie can't join us today. She is currently doing a theater reenactment of the 1996 film The Craft. I think she's doing Nev Campbell's character. I'm not sure. But sitting in her place is the one, the only, Dr. Ryan Marino. Dr. Marino, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, this is my favorite podcast. So. You've been on twice now, so the new rule is if you've been a guest twice, you become a guest co-host. That's why I think eventually you do this enough, and then we give you the show, and then Lizzie and I leave. Yeah. That's, that's a plan. I'll Does be, that sound good? Yeah, I'll be setting up your retirement. <laughs> oh, man, so I was going to ask you how, how you're doing, um, but we, you know, when this episode comes out, it's going to be next week. For people listening, it's this week. It's how time travel works. But for us, we are recording this Friday, and we just learned that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And we just learned it via text while we were getting everything set up for the show. Man, this sucks, Ryan. This really, this really hits hard, huh? Yeah, I, I don't even know how to process this. I mean, if, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg isn't immortal, then I, I don't know what I'm doing because <laughs> I don't stand a chance. I felt that way about David Bowie. When David Bowie died, I was like, oh, that, he can die? That could happen? People like him can die? And, and um, it, you know, what I'm really curious about is, um, well, I'm curious about a lot of things. I'm curious about how the argument is going to go between people saying you can't fill this spot, it's an election year, and them doing it anyways, as they're going to do. But what I'm kind of curious about is if the narrative around her is going to change you know, like she's such a, an icon, she's such a hero, but people are going to be so sad and so mad about this. They're going to point to the fact that she could have retired at one point when it was a safe time for a, a liberal or, or a democratic leaning judge to retire. And they're going to be pretty mad 
about that. So I'm wondering how people are going to respond to this. Is she still going to be lionized or are people just going to be like, why the hell didn't she retire when she could? Was it her ego, et cetera? Yeah. And I mean, I think this, this is going to be a great episode to talk to someone about causes of death and all of that, but people, people die unexpectedly. Um, there's no way, way to know if she really knew she was going to die anytime soon. And I think e- even if she did, there, there is something to be said about kind of a, a patriotic duty of serving on the Supreme Court, especially when there, when there's concerns about undue political influence. Um, regardless of what your politics are, we want a kind of fair and balanced Supreme Court that appeals to everybody. Man, probably never before in history have so many people simultaneously sent the text to their friends just with the one word, fuck, in it. This is a this is a tough one. If I'm if I'm trying to think of positives from this, the one thing that I can kind of get from this, the one positive thing I think is that on some visceral level, it is very clear now how important every election is, like what the downstream consequences can be. I think we all see that now, and hopefully it motivates us. Anyways, um, this one goes out to RBG. She uh, was a hero and an icon, and. Um, and she was a, a blessing. So anyways, stay tuned for a great guest. Speaking of blessings, we have Judy Melanick, Dr. Judy Melanick and her husband, TJ Mitchell. She is a forensic pathologist and he is a New York Times bestselling novelist. They're going to talk about forensic pathology. They're going to talk about why they decided to move to New Zealand from the United States in a time of COVID. And they're going to talk about how the countries are handling COVID differently and whether or not you should move there. And I'm glad you're here to help me do it, man. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I mean, I assumed when you asked me to join that we'd be talking about rectal foreign bodies again, but Judy Melanick and uh, TJ, I mean, they're, they're great. We'll find a way to work it in. Don't worry. <laughs> um, real quick before we get started, where can people find you on uh, Twitter? At Ryan Marino, R-Y-A-N-M-A-R-I-N-O. If you guys are on Twitter, you have to be following Ryan. He's one of the best resources, medically uh, or otherwise. And if you're not on Twitter, you should get on Twitter just to follow Ryan. So uh, stay tuned. We have a great show coming up and a great guest co-host. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the House of Pod. Today we are joined by Dr. Judy Melanick and her husband, TJ Mitchell. Uh, Dr. Melanick is a former medical examiner in San Francisco, and uh, she is also a co author with her husband, who is a novelist. Their books have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, the first book was called First Cut. Uh, Dr. Melanick has served as a consultant for shows like ER and Mythbusters. And she sits on the editorial board of the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology. So we have questions for both of you guys. But um, the first one I think we need to start with is just for our listeners who may not know, tell us what a forensic pathologist is and what they do. A forensic pathologist performs autopsies in cases of sudden, unexpected, or violent deaths. In order to be a forensic pathologist, you first have to train in pathology, which is the hospital uh, part of laboratory-based medicine. It includes uh, surgical pathology as well as laboratory management. 
Um, but you generally work for a government agency, either a coroner or a medical examiner, and you do death investigations and write death certificates. And the book that you mentioned, First Cut, is our first novel that we've written together. We are a, a co-author team in addition to being married. Uh, but our first book together was called Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies, and the Making of a Medical Examiner, which is a nonfiction book. It is Dr. Melanick's memoir of learning how to do forensic autopsies after training as a pathologist. It was about my fellowship training. Yeah, so I think, I mean, especially in kind of recent current events have brought some issues regarding cause of death and how we determine death certificates and what that means to kind of the forefront here. So um, are you able to kind of discuss what goes into a death certificate and how cause of death is determined and what necessarily that means? Sure. The cause of death is the disease or the injury that started the lethal sequence of events. So things like cardiorespiratory arrest is not acceptable as a cause of death. Everybody dies because their heart stops beating or their lungs stop breathing. You need to look at the underlying source, what started the process. So for instance, if someone um, uh, has a heart attack, a myocardial infarct, we know in medical jargon, right? A myocardial infarct can be due to underlying atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or hardening of the arteries from cholesterol. That's a natural disease process. But if you had a heart attack because you snorted too much cocaine, that the cause of death would be cocaine intoxication. It wouldn't be the heart attack. So you got to look at what the underlying reason is for the death. And when it comes to uh, specifically COVID-19, um, there was a lot of hoopla and criticism about death certification not being accurate because people had underlying conditions. Well, we always put underlying conditions on the death certificate. That doesn't mean a person didn't die of COVID-19 because they had underlying conditions or that they would have died anyway. Um, it's our way of documenting what the medical disease processes are that a person has specifically for statistical purposes, because who looks at death certificates? Um, statisticians do. And that data is what informs us about who is, for example, susceptible to death from COVID-19. So knowing about those underlying conditions helps us inform the public whether they're susceptible or not and whether they need to take certain precautions. And the other thing that goes on the death certificate besides the cause of death is the manner of death, which is a completely separate thing that is often confused, especially by, by journalists or by lay people. You want to explain what the manner of death is, Doc? Sure. There are different classifications for the cause. So if the death is natural, meaning from a disease or aging, then the manner is going to be natural. But if the death is due to some sort of injury, for example, a poisoning or trauma, then it gets categorized based on whether it is inflicted by another person, in which case it would be a homicide, self-inflicted with the intention to kill yourself, in which case it would be a suicide, or inflicted unexpectedly or you, know, you couldn't predict it, and in which case it would be an accident. And then we also have the option of saying undetermined, meaning we can't really classify this. But the majority of cases, over 95%, get classified as either natural, accident, homicide, or suicide. Both cause of death and manner of death are very important in different ways. First of all, I love the fact that, um, TJ, you referred to your wife as Doc. I wish my wife would call me anything other than meat. So I think that's pretty <laughs> cool. Um, so 
talking about this, uh, the reason we're, we're talking about these debt certificates is because, as Ryan just mentioned, there's a lot of controversy now around them. And there are people who, a lot of people, uh, who say we overestimate the number of deaths out there due to COVID, like Governor DeSantos of Florida, using examples like a guy who falls off a motorcycle, dies in a motorcycle accident, but he has COVID. And we're, there are there are these examples out there, and there are people who are promoting that. First question I have is, are we overestimating, in this very leading question, the number of deaths due to COVID? And two, where is this misinformation, if there is, coming from? We are not overestimating. In fact, we're underestimating, grossly underestimating the number of deaths due either directly or indirectly to COVID. And that specific example that DeSantis gave, I actually wrote about it in uh, MedPage today, um, was debunked by the local medical examiner who said, yes, this guy wasn't a motorcycle accident, but then he was hospitalized and he should have recovered, except he got COVID and died. So that should be classified as a COVID death and not as a motorcycle death. Or it actually should be both because both of them are contributing to the death. Remember, we don't have just one cause of death per customer sometimes. People don't read the manual and only die of one thing. People can <laughs> die of more than one thing. Um, so I think that you know the people who are misrepresenting the numbers or trying to minimize the numbers and underplaying the numbers, it's because they have a political agenda and they're trying to make uh, it seem that their response in the United States is uh, appropriate or um, that scientists such as myself are panicking. And that is complete hogwash. It's a misrepresentation of what's actually going on. Um, in order to really ascertain the deaths from COVID-19, both direct and indirect, we have to look at what's called as excess deaths. And, you know, can you explain that? Excess mortality, unfortunately, yeah. is the sort of simplest but bluntest way, I think, to examine the number of deaths from a cause that is poorly understood. And I think that's what's happening with COVID-19 right now. We won't know for a while until we compare the month of April last year to the month of April next year and see how many more or fewer people died. Uh, in some categories, it will be fewer people because there are fewer car accidents, for instance. Homicides are actually down. But the number of people who die of natural disease that is not diagnosed as COVID-19, I think a lot of those yeah. cases are actually going to turn out to be COVID-19. Right. So some of them are COVID-19 and they weren't picked up because we weren't doing enough testing in the early days. So they died in a nursing home and people just assumed they died of Alzheimer's or heart disease when they actually had COVID and nobody tested them. So there's going to be that subset. And then there's also the subset of people who have natural disease, but we're avoiding the hospital so that they died at home of a heart attack instead of making it to the hospital and being saved. Or um, I have had several who died at home from GI bleeds where they should have come to you, the gastroenterologist, and been and survived it, but they were social distancing. They didn't have their support system in place where people would tell them, hey, Phil, go to the hospital. Um, and they also uh, were afraid to go to the hospital in some cases because they didn't want to contract COVID. Right. So that fear kept them at home. And of course, we aren't going to know what the long-term effects are and the long-term mortality on this yeah. for a while. We have, we have to do a look back, but it takes um, months and even years to gather this data because you compare from year to year. You compare last year's April to this year's April to next year's April, 
and you can't do that with just day-to-day data. Right. It's, it's got to be a look back. But certainly to say we didn't specifically do a test on this person and they died of what looks like COVID, but we can't count that as COVID because we don't have a test, that's not going to prove to be productive. Yeah, this is a gross, gross undercount. I mean, it's going to, right, we've passed 200,000. I know, I don't know what our number is today in the United States. What the official, passed number, it, is, what the official number is, but we've passed that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think for forensic pathology is something that's like developed so much with with technology over the past few decades. Is there something else where you can think of an example with kind of the manipulation of like death certificates and cause of death in, in the history of your specialty? Because it just seems like this is it's getting so much so much attention and has taken such a hold on people where they don't believe this field that I mean you, you trained for so long, you have amazing subject matter expertise in this. It's something that most people can't, can't understand and won't understand. Um, it's, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around. Uh, Ryan, I, I think that I, as somebody who writes about forensic pathology, I, I, want to, I want to correct one thing that, or disagree with one thing that you said, that Dr. Melanick and her colleagues are still using the same tools that their colleagues were using 100 years ago, largely. I don't, I don't know. Do you think that the technology yeah. has changed a lot? Well, the human body hasn't changed in hundreds of years. And yeah. we are still using scalpels and forceps and um, you know, rib cutters. Those Which are, are tree loppers. Yeah. They go and get those at a hardware store. Yeah, so those are the same. I mean, where we do have an advantage now compared to 100 years ago or even 10 years ago, is that we have access to uh, genetic testing that we didn't have in the past. Um, What we see now, for instance, with COVID, since we were on the subject, is uh, genomic analysis of the virus in order to figure out um, which strain it is and therefore track the strains to establish how it's spreading through the community. So these are, these are tools that didn't exist in the past and they are being utilized uh, by experts in our field. But uh, the problem is that there is definitely an underfunding and underappreciation of forensic pathology in the United States. Things are funded on a county by county basis, and many. And it's a government job. And it's a government job. So, um, forensic pathology is one of those fields where, in medicine, you take an extra year of training, and with that extra year of training, you have now suppressed your income by anywhere from twenty to one hundred thousand dollars a year for the rest of your career. The the comparative pay, if you had just stayed in regular pathology and worked in a hospital, you'd make more money than doing forensics. Um, and that's really a problem, that the, the government sector can't compete with the hospital and, and private sector. Um, and people do not go into this field as a result of it, especially since they have burgeoning debt from mm, medical school right. tra- um, education. And, and as a consequence, we, we as a country don't have enough forensic pathologists. You would think from watching yeah. television that there's one on every corner, but there's only about 450 or 500 board certified forensic pathologists in the United States. And currently we need, practicing right I'm, now. Yeah. And we, we need about twice that number just to, to cover the current caseload. And guess what? The caseload is going to go way up this year. Too. It has been going up. And a lot of agencies have felt it because of not just COVID-19 causing more deaths from natural disease and people out of hospital dying, but also um, because of uh, the opioid uh, epidemic and uh, the economic stresses on people. Um, Some agencies have noticed an uptick in suicides and uh, uh, 
accidental deaths as well. It's a public health job. So it is an important time for forensic pathologists. So in July of 2020, you and your family moved to New Zealand. Um, can you tell us why you made that, why you made that move? Uh, we made that move for multiple reasons. I mean, any major life change is usually not predicated on one thing. Right. Uh, the, if I were to sum it up in one word, it would be COVID-19. Um, what happened for me professionally was I was working in a county agency where I could basically see the writing on the wall with regards to uh, infection control and the lack of adherence to protocols that I had put in myself. Uh, people weren't wearing masks, they weren't social distancing, or they'd kind of do a half-hearted attempt at work, but then they, I didn't feel like they were doing it outside of work. Um, and I felt like I was at risk going into work every single day. And it wasn't from the dead bodies as much as it was from uh, the staff and the shift schedules that they had put in place um, and the lack of personal protective equipment. And so I needed to go somewhere where I didn't feel like I was going to put my husband, my mom, my children at risk every time I came home. And then meanwhile, on the home front. We have four children. They are all teenagers. We have four teenagers right now. <laughs> two of them, two of them are in college. Uh, two of them are in college and, and have stayed behind in California. But the other two are high school age and had not been in school for the last third of the year, like everybody else. And we knew that in New Zealand, the, the outbreak was under control and kids were in school and led normal lives. And we decided that we wanted to offer our girls the opportunity to have normal lives if we could at all make it possible. Yeah. And that's part of the reason, big part of the reason why we're here. Yeah, so I was recruited actually. I got an email in that said, would you like to work somewhere far from worries from COVID-19? And at the time, <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was the first line. Um, the, it's an effective pitch. Yeah, it worked <laughs> yeah. because immediately I was like, CV send. It's a totally different ball game. Um, they paid attention to what was coming out, the information that was coming out of Wuhan from China, what was coming out of South Korea, and they created protocols to get it to zero. And they're pretty straightforward. It means locking down for six weeks, but it was also supported, meaning that it, you didn't just lock people down. Uh, food was available, resources like healthcare was available. Um, salaries. Salaries, people's salaries were paid by the government. <laughs> okay, it was, it was subsidized or paid by their employer and subsidized by the government so that nobody could be evicted, <laughs> nobody could be thrown out on the street. And there was both financial and economic and healthcare support during that time period. And then when they came out of the lockdown, they didn't just do a free-for-all. They came up slowly. Well, they came out of the lockdown right. after they'd eradicated yeah. the virus from the shores of these two large islands. Yeah, they went to close to zero or they had the people who had it were in, in isolation, either yeah. managed isolation or hospitalized. So they kept a very close watch on them and then followed up with contact tracing and uh, testing, extensive, extensive testing. And that means that anybody who came in from flights from other countries, they weren't, they didn't, weren't just told to self-isolate. Mm -hmm. They were put in hotels. We were. We were, we were arrived, when we arrived. We were for two weeks in a hotel. We were, we were taken off the, off the plane along with everybody else put on a bus and taken straight to a hotel that had been dedicated only for 
isolating people who had just arrived for 14 days. And during that time, we were tested for COVID twice. Uh, The people who were doing the testing were from the Ministry of Health. They were very well trained and very professional and everything went very smoothly. It was, it was amazing. It's, it's been amazing here in New Zealand to see what a nimble government response to this virus can look like because that's what they've been doing. The government has been listening to the scientists and they have been changing their response to this virus as the facts on the ground change. So this is not a masking culture, but now uh, there are more and more people wearing masks because that's, that's getting out into, uh, into the dialogue and people are, people are paying attention. And the message is consistent. Yes. The Ministry of Health, the Prime Minister, um, even opposing parties are all saying, wash your hands, social distance, wear masks, follow the rules, because they know that this works and it has worked successfully. How hard was the licensing? I mean, we get this question from a lot of doctors here in, in the United States. A lot of people are now talking about what they're going to do if, say, come November 11th, things don't go the way they're hoping they, they do. We have a lot of doctors talking about going to other countries. How hard was it to get licensed? Uh, for me, because I was recruited, the company that recruited me made the arrangements and basically heralded me through the process of uh, getting the licensure. Because right now I'm on a temporary works visa for just 12 months. And then after that, either we can renew the temporary visa or we can apply for a permanent residency, which is what we'd like to do. Um, so there's transitions associated with that. But most of the recruitment companies, if you're um, applying for a job in New Zealand or elsewhere in the the world, um, they can honor the medical license at least to a point. Um, There are some places where you might have to repeat residency or repeat some sort of training or do some testing. Um, But depending, obviously, on your level of training and your expertise, I mean, I have um, close to two decades of experience as a forensic pathologist. Uh, There weren't uh, yeah, this, Dr. Melanick is is in a very narrow yeah. specialty. Don't forget, and we want to be clear that she was filling a role that nobody else could. Yeah, there is one doctor who does forensic pathology, uh, does uh, forensic autopsies here in the capital city of Wellington. His <laughs> his contract had had run out, and they had nobody that was doing autopsies in their capital city. And when they when they recruited Judy, she was able and willing to fill yeah. that role. And we're very happy that she did because I'm a writer. I'm totally portable. You talked a lot about the kind of leadership response and how, I mean, I think that's been very dramatic. We've seen the United States and other countries, and certainly New Zealand has one of the the greatest leadership responses to this pandemic. Um, In addition to, I mean, a a lot of other issues we've seen in recent years as well. What do you think the difference is between kind of the, the people in New Zealand and the people in the United States? Because even though there, there is a, a, big role for leadership to play in responding to COVID. Um, it seems like the science, the messaging has, has been available to people who want to hear it. And in the United States, the, the lockdowns were in place and people didn't take them seriously. The mask mandates have been in place and people are, are storming the state capitals with, with guns. Uh, is, is there something inherently different about Americans I have great faith in the American people, and I know, being one of them and um, being a patriot, that we can come together in times of stress if we have the proper leadership. I remember I was in New York City uh, when 9-11 happened. I was one of uh, 30 forensic pathologists who were at the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner. And um, it was a traumatic time for us. 
Um, it was dramatic and awful, and we didn't know wh whether there would be additional terrorist attacks. It was a time of war. And it also seemed hopeless And it did. It did, but, but leadership came together and people came together. And it wasn't just bucket brigades. It was donations and uh, contributions. And everybody in the country came together for a pretty long period of time as a result. And I think that we did this in World War II. We came together, you know, historically um, and developed a war economy that changed everything. You know, the, the young men went to war and the women went to the factories and the war economy got us out of the depression. I mean, we know this from history. So the American people have the capacity to come together and support one another and be generous and kind and follow rules if there is the proper leadership. To me, this is an ultimate failure of leadership and I'm looking straight up at the White House. I don't think that the governors could have done this by themselves because you don't have, you have porous state borders <laughs> um, and it's only the federal government that can invoke the Defense Protection Act to make personal protective equipment so that states are not competing with one another for gear. It's only the federal government that can financially support people, both with regards to taxes and laws, in ways that the state, you know, states can't print money, the federal government can, the federal government can go into debt. So from an economic standpoint, this is a leadership failure on the federal level. Um, along those lines of, of differences, uh, have you noticed, aside from less COVID, what cases are you seeing less of and what cases are you seeing more of? Yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah, that is a big difference. So um, compared to Oakland, which is where I worked before, um, I see a lot more natural deaths, uh, heart disease. I see a lot of uh, suicides, uh, both hangings and overdoses. Um, and I do not see, I have knock wood, I'm going to knock some wood here because we always do when it comes. I, I haven't seen a homicide yet. Um, and I haven't um, seen many motor vehicle accidents, which actually kind of surprises me, given that the roads here are really narrow. <laughs> and <laughs> at least for us, um, driving on the opposite side has been absolutely terrifying. So we, we've been avoiding <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, and I, a lot of natural deaths. And the other thing that I, I'm seeing more of, which I'm excited about because I'm in an academic center, um, is... Uh, uh, complications of therapy or hospital-based uh, autopsies, which uh, when I was working for law enforcement, they didn't bring those cases in. They expected the hospital pathologist to do that. But now that I'm in a hospital, I get to see those as well. So from a, a professional standpoint, this has been a real uh, a, you know, learning experience. No gunshot wounds. Yeah. And then no gunshot wounds. That's the other thing. I haven't seen a gunshot wound yet here, oh, wow. which that was a weekly uh, you know, I, 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 you guys probably know from hashtag this is our lane um, yeah. that I was active on Twitter uh, about uh, the gun uh, control debate being about public health and that doctors should be able to play a role in that because of what we see. And as a forensic pathologist, I testify in court in legal cases pertaining to gunshot wounds, or at least I, I did in uh, Oakland and in San Francisco Bay Area for, you know, I would say I would see typically at least one gunshot suicide a week, and I would see one or two gunshot homicides a week um, when I was working there. And um, I've been here, what, a month and a half. I still haven't seen one. Wow, that's great. My yeah. jurisdiction is about half a million people. Yeah. so That's wow. sizable. Yeah. No, they're doing something right, clearly. So what would you say to a U.S. doctor who's considering 
going abroad, maybe not New Zealand, but maybe Canada or some other place that's mentioned a lot. What would you say to them before they do that? Yeah. And just on that note, like, I don't know if you guys have heard the news, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away tonight. Oh my God. So no. If yeah, I need to no, we did not hear that news. I had not heard that. Oh no. I'm sorry. No, but that's yeah. Breaks if I heart. need to get, get to New Zealand. It, <laughs> things could get drastic soon. I think you're absolutely right, though, that there's going to be a brain drain in the United States, uh, regardless of the outcome of the election, if COVID-19 is not controlled. Um, a lot of doctors have reached out to me uh, personally, either uh, publicly on Twitter or privately through direct messages, um, asking me about what I did, how I got here, um, and about the licensure process. I mean, obviously, if you're going to relocate to another country, the first and most important thing is it helps to have a job, <laughs> as opposed to just going blindly. Um, you know, you can't just go on a travel visa and overstay, they're going to kick you out. So you need to be able to uh, channel your resources, get a job offer, either in an academic setting or a hospital. And then usually it's your employer that will help uh, you know, follow and give you the instructions and give you the information that you need in order to get the licensure and the visa in place. So you always want to start with the job first, uh, rather than just flee and then try to figure it out later. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe people will be reaching out to, to more American doctors and maybe there will be headhunters that we can, um, we can be looking for. But Ryan, you can't leave. I'm sorry. That's not an option. So don't, don't, don't get your hopes up. Okay. Let's let's talk about your guys' next book, or it just it's out, right? First cut is available. First cut has been out since January. Yes. Can yeah. In fact, our, our book tour, our book tour was cut short because of COVID nineteen. Yeah. So our, our first book, Working Stiff, as, as I said, was nonfiction about learning how to do autopsies. It was written in the first person because it was based on Judy's diary. My voice. Right. <laughs> yeah. After that, we didn't want to write a follow up to to Working Stiff. So we decided to switch to fiction and take the stories that she has and uh, turn them into detective novels. And I was always a big fan of uh, Kathy Reichs and Patricia Cornwell, all the detective novels, but the heroine is a pathologist or somebody who works in forensics. Um, but uh, Kathy Reichs is an anthropologist and Patricia Cornwell is not a forensic pathologist. She had worked at the Virginia medical examiner's office uh, as a transcriptionist. So she picked up the lingo, but she doesn't have the stories that I have. And so by writing fiction, we could take cases that I had either in San Francisco or in Oakland and fictionalize them and utilize the science in order to pull the plot forward and uh, create something original. Well, the novels that we write are written in the American noir tradition, meaning there's a place that's already broken. The detective goes in to do a job, and at the end of doing the job, she has solved the case, but she hasn't really fixed anything. The place is still broken. Your collaborative style is great. I So I was running late tonight and didn't really prepare anything where I'm sitting, but I'm next to my bookshelf and yes. have first right here. Um, and I mean, I think this book kind of has something for everyone. If, if you want like a, a beach read, if you want like an, an intellectual novel, it, it, it's great. 
Um, so I don't want to get science is accurate. We worked really Great, hard you, on the forensics. To make yeah, sure that's that's the, you know, people, people find out that we're a married <laughs> couple and we write together and they say, how, right. how do you do that without, how do you write about murders without committing one? And <laughs> the answer is we have no overlapping skill sets. Right. <laughs> Judy has the stories and she knows the science and she knows exactly what Dr. Tesca, our, our, um, our protagonist would do in any situation, and she can always tell me that. Yeah, and TJ likes to wrestle with commas. In fact, that's what we're doing right doing now right on now. the on the uh, we're in what's called the the pass pages, which is the, the very last set of edits that you can do for a novel for um, the sequel to First Cut, which is called Aftershock, yeah. and that's coming out in January. In fact, so, you can pre-order it at our website. We'll put up links to that for sure. I'm excited to read it. Actually, I'm really looking forward to it. I have an idea for a third. If you want to hear it. A oh, new, charming, it? handsome pathologist, forensic proctologist comes in. <laughs> and he solves crimes through the dead anus. That's his yes. skill set. Him and Jesse, they, they have to work together, even though they have totally different styles. But then they kind of solve the crime together. I'm just throwing it out there. You guys totally. do you have, have your it. agent talk to our agent. Have our, we'll have our people talk. Well, right, there'll be a romance Ryan, Ryan, Ryan is my agent, so I'll have him talk to you afterwards. <laughs> Well, I can, I can contribute some ideas uh, about things that they find during the forensic proctology. Sure. <laughs> I, I'm sure, sure it sounds you compelling. Find very interesting. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. you found That's a number. Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling out my thesaurus right now. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, actually, this happens to us all the time. I won't say time. what I'm pulling it out of. Well, but. every time we go to you know meet up with friends or have parties, people are always trying to take him away from me. They're always like, oh, I have a story <laughs> idea. Would you write with me? And I'm like, no, he's mine. I have him. <laughs> That's great. We'll put up links. And um, I can't wait to read it myself. And uh, thank you guys so much for spending the time to chat with us. Yeah, and if, if you want to continue the tradition of having people show up again, if you ever need a forensic analysis, you know where to reach me. Totally. You are our go-to guys. Yes, yeah, in the age of uh, COVID, it's totally okay to be in your pajamas is my understanding. Yeah, yeah, I, I have no, there's no dress code for this show. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified healthcare provider for your specific healthcare needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.